0: Good afternoon everyone. I'm just reporting from Wigan today, just an hour and a half down the motorway from my little town in Yorkshire. I've done a little bit of research on this hotel and I'm going to do a little report outside of there.
1: This is a recording taken by Yorkshire Rose, or at least that's the name of her YouTube channel. We don't know her real name, but her subscribers referred to her as Rose. And this is one of her most common types of video. A live stream outside a hotel.
0: What's that guy over there? Thank you. Is he security? What does he look like with that badge on? He looks like NHS. No.
1: She's at the Britannia Hotel in Standish, Wigan. Wigan is a large town in Greater Manchester, and Standish is sort of the suburban outcrop of the town. The hotel is right by a busy road and is the kind of hotel with bright, zany patterned carpets throughout and a very humid indoor swimming pool.
0: Well, I'm just going to have a little walk in, into the, um, <clears throat> the front doors and have a little look. Um, I won't be going in and harassing anyone today, but I just wanted to come down and, and take a look myself.
1: Yorkshire Rose calls herself a citizen journalist, meaning that her publication is a selection of slightly blurry videos on YouTube. Sometimes vigilante journalists might feel more apt. There's a real sense of anger in her videos. In most of them, she tries to enter the hotels and sometimes the exchange gets heated and she starts yelling, I'm exposing you. But not today. Today, she's not harassing anyone, just taking a look around.
0: Excuse me.
2: One more a Jill.
0: Can I ask you a question, please? Excuse me. No, he really doesn't want to talk. We only want to know if the swimming pool's hot enough for you. Oh, look, we've got little lunch bags there. Her followers
1: leave comments on the live stream. Wonderful work, Yorkshire Rose. It's disgusting what's happening. Your valuable reporting will form archival records of the disasters that await this country. The reason that I found this video at all was that in a funny turn of events, Yorkshire Rose was actually walking the same route I'd been walking just a few weeks earlier. Almost exactly a month before she decided to scope it out, I was there with Matthew, another writer on the podcast.
2: Is this it? Um,
1: yes. There obviously are people hanging outside, so
2: a tiny hotel. You're always welcome. Like
1: well, oh. I think we should just
2: it still says hotel patrons only.
1: I'd come up to Wigan to interview someone and I knew we'd end up talking about this hotel a fair bit so beforehand we decided to hop in a taxi and come to Standish. We just wanted to have a quick look at the area so we could describe it for the episode. We walked around, chatted to some local people before arriving outside the hotel. It's quite, um...
2: It's not welcoming. It's like it's just a bunch of, like, quite small windows.
1: You can kind of see how that would have been a hotel. I don't know, it's not very hotel-y, is it?
2: a no, big, strange, kind of modern glass foyer.
1: A modern glass foyer, which housed several large security men watching us closely. It was pretty unremarkable otherwise, but I noticed some descriptors down. And then we called for a taxi to come and pick us up.
2: Quarter past seven. Okay. All right. Cheers. See ya.
1: Cool. 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 Sorry.
2: Can I ask, uh, ask why you're recording?
1: the sound of a very large, very angry security guard running towards us. I shut off the recording immediately because, well, he was very large and very angry and it was clear that he wanted us to go away. Which I was surprised by. I mean, after all, we'd just been standing in front of a public hotel. But then again, I suppose I didn't realise at the time how frequently he was called upon to protect who was inside. My name is Tilly Robinson, and you're listening to The Water We Swim In, a seven-part mini-series that explores what system change really means. Each episode investigates a story that helps us understand the way our society's been designed so that we can see the invisible forces leading us towards the climate crisis. Because in order to know where you're going, you first need to know where you stand and how you got there. Last week, we looked at how our corporations obstruct the way that we might democratically deal with climate change. And in this episode... We're going to have a look at another obstruction the rise of the far right. We're also talking about a locally besieged co op, how we feel when we lose 20 quid, and the absolutely massive coincidence of how immigrants become extra scary whenever the Prime Minister is in trouble.
2: Part 1 The Tinder and the Match. <laughs>
1: These are the sounds of me walking through a refugee camp at about 10pm in Dunkirk, northern France. you probably heard of the jungle in Calais, which was this massive, unofficial refugee encampment on the edge of France, full of people hoping to make it across to the UK. Well, Dunkirk camp still exists. It's smaller, with no organisation, in a muddy bit of wood sandwiched between a motorway and a railway. And living there, in tents, are several hundred people, mostly Kurdish. Kurds face extreme persecution in Turkey, Iran, and Syria, and Iraq. But it's not like France is being particularly welcoming. Periodically, the police turn up and they slash tents, they take away belongings, and they bundle people into vans saying that they're going to be taken to official centres or safe houses. But more often than not, they're actually driven several hours towards Paris and then just turfed out. And I know this because I worked there in 2018 for a charity called Women and Children's Centre for Refugees. And soon after I started, I met a 12-year-old girl, Iraqi Kurdish. I'll call her Amal. She was small for her age, but she was whip-smart. During her long journey to France, she'd picked up almost perfect English and now acted as the advocate for her family who didn't speak any English themselves. She and I got on really well. We struck up a friendship. She'd sit next to me most days whilst I worked in the van, chatting away about this or that, showing me handstands and occasionally helping by translating for me. When I left Dunkirk camp, I worried. I was aware the situation was only going to get worse. The UN estimates as many as one billion environmental migrants in the next 30 years. And I worried about Amal. You never know what's going to happen to these families. A few days before I'd started working in Dunkirk, another Kurdish Iraqi girl, a two-year-old called Muada, had been traveling with her parents and older brother in the back of a lorry trying to make it to the UK. It ended up going to Belgium instead, and the police tried to stop it by shooting it. Amawada was shot through her cheek and killed. But fortunately for Amal and her family, they survived their journey to the UK, although it wasn't without some near misses. And they were taken into official processing and claimed sanctuary. They'll have to wait a few years to find out if they'll gain permanent asylum, and her parents aren't allowed to work in the meantime, but at least Amal is allowed to attend school and she gets to live in a house in a small town in northern England. That's pretty standard. A lot of refugees end up in the north. Not all of them have houses, however. Many of them end up in hotels, like in Wigan.
3: Yeah, actually, sure I think my name's Mick Taylor. I'm the coordinator of SWAP. Which is support for Wigan Arrivals project. We operate out of our own building, which we won as an asset transfer from the council, which is great because it means we can run our own activities without anyone breathing down our necks. <laughs> yeah, I can totally see that.
1: Yeah. And it's a, it's a nice building as well, actually. It's got a nice we'll building. We're it, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit
3: grotty. It needs some plaster work done.
1: <laughs> no, but, but it, it feels it warm. does. I agree. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, definitely. I'm sitting with Mick Taylor. We're in a small echoey side room with painted baby blue walls and loaded display boards, you know, like the ones you get in schools. Makes the same sort of ilk of man as Greg Davis or Dara O'Brien. Like a big lovely boulder with short grey hair and grey beard, strong ears and a real ability to chat. And I'm there to ask him about a rough patch in the town's recent history.
3: Basically in 2015, what we experienced in the UK was uh, another peak in the number of people arriving. From various parts of the world. What that means is when you get a sudden spike of people arriving into the UK, then we do run out of asylum properties. There just isn't the spare capacity in the housing stock. So they start using hotels.
1: In 2015, the Britannia Hotel in Standish, Wigan was closed to the public. There was never any formal announcement. It was simply designated full on its website. And this is because it was being used to temporarily place about 100 asylum seekers. This was a shock to Wigan. 100-plus people arriving overnight in one particularly sleepy patch of suburbia is pretty noticeable. I had a feeling Mick was the guy to talk to about it because he knew everyone. The asylum seekers, the locals, the officials, the hotel staff, the process. And that's in part because he's the coordinator of SWAP, Support Wigan's Arrival Project.
3: You wouldn't believe the problems some of these things cause. Yeah. Colour-coded wheely bins. So in Wigan, we teach them, look, see your green one? That's where you put your food waste. Oh, and yeah. your black one, that, and then you do it there. And, yeah. And there's another reason for that as well. Because if they get a lot of these things wrong, it just encourages racism. It gives some of the naysayers a reason to have a go. They're always putting the blinking plastic bottles in the green waste bin. Well... We have to tell them not to.
1: SWAP help refugees, or asylum seekers to use the official term, who are placed in Wigan to assimilate into the community. And they're kept busy, mixes anything from 15 to 80 people in a single day. They offer English lessons and demonstrations on how to live in an English town, what bin to use, how to buy a train ticket, why you don't call 999 when you have a cold. It's a difficult task at the best of times when you've got a steady influx of asylum seekers entering the community but whack a whole lot of refugees into a hotel overnight. And suddenly, a place that had a long history of being pretty welcoming, changes its mind.
3: Six years ago, there was a presence there that lasted about a week of some far-right activists but they were down there for like eight hours a day. They had a confederate flag. Can't work out the symbolism, don't get it at all, but that's what they did. They had the confederate flag planted in the grass verge or And So they were sort of
1: protesting outside the hotel.
3: Yeah, but it's fascinating because when they do one of these videos, it starts off with music very similar to the theme tune from Gladiator. It's (laughs) dun-dun-dun-da-da, dun-dun-dun-da-da. It's all very, oh, come on, oh yeah. Yeah. It's very rousing and... uh,
1: This influx of asylum seekers being temporarily placed in Wigan seemed to trigger a rise in far-right sentiment and activity in the town. They would hold rallies outside the hotel, they'd try and enter them to expose the asylum seekers there, and they'd report alleged news stories. They're all illegal migrants, they're scaring old people, they're perving on schoolchildren. All of this circulated on social media, and some of it was even printed in the local news. And unsurprisingly, it frightened people.
3: It's worth me pointing out that Wigan is is not culturally diverse. It's got one of the smallest black minority ethnic populations in England. Under three percent. Under three percent. Yeah. So what what you've probably got is a lot of people, I'm gonna spell it out, my view, especially older people who've probably apart from the GP probably haven't seen that many people from overseas. When these rumors go out and they believe them, it's confirming a fear that they already have. It, it's a fear that's probably through ignorance. They don't They don't probably want to be racist, if that makes any sense, but mm-hmm. when people are putting all this hyped up stuff out there, then people got suckered into it.
1: And this hyped up stuff was very effective. Here's a Britain First video. Music's not far off how Mick described it. It shows footage of the hotel, and the captions read, This hotel in Wigan has a billiards room, a cocktail bar, a health club, with an indoor heated pool, hot tub and fitness centre. All the illegal immigrants say they are waiting for houses. They are kept here at your expense. A narrative was established, and it was one that hit a nerve. They're here to exploit us, they're dangerous, they're expensive. Wigan isn't a wealthy town. Three areas of the borough qualify for the Independent Endowment Scheme, which was set up to help the most left-behind areas in the UK. And over a quarter of children in the borough are living in poverty. So for them, struggling to get by, the luxury hotel stuff was galling.
3: And back then, there was a number of things reported in the media. And and I'll tell you what, I could could tell you what some of them were Mm. and what the official response was. So some people who didn't want them in the hotel commented that the local Methodist church had been broken into. Well, the local Methodist church minister used to volunteer here, and so did his wife. Oh. She used to make us flatjack, delicious <laughs> stuff. And I said to him, "I said, I've heard your church has been broken into." He said, oh, Lord, "A lot of rubbish."
4: Oh, really? It,
3: had, it was a lie. It wasn't an exaggeration. It was a lie. Another thing that was put all over social media was that there's an allotment nearby and this is funny is that stupid but these these illegal immigrants is the language that they tend to use have gone into the allotments and pulled all the vegetables up but it's funny <laughs>
5: yeah because
3: it's not happening is it no well it didn't happen because the allotment society said that's just not happened
1: the police actually took it upon themselves to make a statement, to say there has been no increase in the incidences of crime since the asylum seekers were moved into the hotel. Unless, of course, you count aggression shown towards the asylum seekers. But it didn't matter. Because these stories, they struck right to the heart of Wigan's sense of safety and community. And soon after, a Facebook group formed.
3: It's there, I can have a look at it, it's all there. Oh, wow. WAR, it stands for, I Think the acronym is WAR.
1: War. Wigan Against Refugees. Almost the exact opposite of SWAP, Support Wigan Arrivals Project. The description reads, Wigan Against Refugees are locals sick of being treated like second-class people in our own town. All around, the new refugees have been welcomed by councils who can't even afford to look after their own residents. Well, we don't want them in Wigan. We don't want them in the Britannia Hotel. Wigan for Wiganers. Created by a member of the Northwest Infidels Fight Back, a guy called Ian, who intends to run for UKIP, it has over 800 members. There was also the No More Economic Migrants in Britannia Hotel Facebook group, which has over 2,000 members and a petition with just as many signatures. This incident wasn't a one-off, nor was it left in 2015. It's a pattern now. Asylum seekers are placed into a hotel whilst they await processing. The far right whip up fear and outrage, and the community responds. And it's intensifying to the point where violent riots are happening, and it's becoming part of the day to day news cycle. You've likely seen stories about clashes erupting outside of hotels. But this hasn't come from nowhere, it's been brewing for years, and it shows us something very clearly. Far-right activity and support is on the rise in the UK. Here's Matthew again. He did some research into this.
2: OK, yes. So, over the last few years, cultural fault lines like Brexit, COVID and Black Lives Matter have made far-right groups much more visible than they were before. You have UKIP, which has become even more right-wing in recent years. You have the BNP, the EDL, Britain First, the British Democratic Party, Patriotic Alternative, British Hand. The list goes on. And there's every sign that support for these groups is going to continue. Half of the teachers in one study said they'd heard pupils express far-right views in their classrooms. And it's not just in the UK. We saw a mainstreaming of radical far-right views under Trump in the US, and Europe's been going the same way. In one of France's most recent election runoffs, Marine Le Pen gained a record 41% of votes. The Sweden Democrats, a party with neo-Nazi roots and a fierce anti-immigration law, won second place in September's national election. In Italy, opinion polls suggest that the next government will be led by Brothers of Italy, an insurgent populist movement whose lineage traces back to Mussolini. And in Hungary, the right-wing government is clamping down on so many freedoms that, according to the EU, it's no longer a democracy. I mean, it's everywhere. Poland, Austria, Serbia, Spain, the Netherlands. All of these places have far-right groups that are on the rise.
1: So the question is, surely... Why is this happening? Why is there this big swing to the far right? Well, there's lots of competing theories, but across almost all of them, two factors keep cropping up again and again. Inequality and immigration. It's suggested that social and economic divisions create an environment in which people are inclined to go to the far right, and then an influx of immigrants is often all it takes to push them in that direction. And this makes sense, right? I mean, I'm not about to tell you that this theory is wrong. But I do think it's incomplete. Because if we want to stop the alarming rise in the far right, we need to understand what's going on here. We need to really understand how inequality and immigration are connected and why some people are responding to bad economic conditions with racism. And to do that, it turns out that we need to return to the story we've been telling we need to talk about our old friend, neoliberalism.
2: Part two, loss aversion.
4: So it's really important to note that neoliberalism cannot be held responsible for everything that is happening in the world today. And I don't want to offer that kind of a framework. And yet, it's responsible for much more than we often think it is if we think of it as simply an economic project.
1: Here's Wendy Brown again, who we heard from in last week's episode. She's here to hold my hand through the tangled web of neoliberal theory to show me how it applies to inequality and immigration. Because, surprisingly, it does. We think of neoliberalism as an economic ideology because its main thing is that it believes that we should have a free market and that we should leave the market alone as much as possible because it's this natural and spontaneous way of assigning value to things. And unless you spend your entire life studying political theory, it's easy to miss the fact that neoliberalism actually has two founding statements, two pillars. In fact, most people do miss it entirely. It's rarely ever talked about. Neoliberalism has two pillars,
4: markets and morals. But there's another spontaneous order much less often attended to in our conversations about neoliberalism, that the neoliberals also cherished. And that was what they called traditional morality or just the order of of morals. And Hayek is clearest about this. What they believed is that in addition to the spontaneity of markets, what shapes history over time most effectively is the evolution of moral orders. And that if states or social justice projects intervene in those, it will do just what happens when states or social justice projects intervene in markets. It will make a mess of them. It will produce totalitarianism. It will wreck the natural and spontaneous moral order that arranges us, produces our our conduct, our hierarchies, and especially gives us the order of family. Two pillars,
1: markets and morals. We know that neoliberals want a free market, you know, a natural and spontaneous market that can naturally and spontaneously assign order to the economy without the need for government involvement. And this is vital to neoliberalism because they have no faith in collective decision-making and are terrified of big government making terrible decisions and creating a totalitarian state with no freedom. In fact, as we learned in episode 5, it's so frightened of a totalitarian state that it wants to stop democracy from allowing people to vote against a totally free market, which sounds pretty totalitarian, but whatever. Neoliberals want a free market, even if that's not what they've achieved. But then they're faced with an issue. Say they've created their perfect economy government very limited, totally free market, everything privatised. Well, If you want to reduce state help, you want to reduce the commons, you want to privatise everything, so all services like libraries and healthcare and education are paid for, well, those things are very helpful to people. And without them, you may end up with an unhappy, disordered society, the kind that nobody wants to live in. So how do you deal with that? Well, you encourage people to live in such a way that they can do without these kinds of state help. You encourage a culture which makes people a particular type of self-sufficient.
4: And the um, great advantage of talking to you is that I am talking to someone who lives in the legacy of Thatcher's England. And there is no better example of somebody who ruled out neoliberalism with a consciousness that while well, everything was going to be privatized and marketized, what also was going to secure order and provision and uh, social integration in a society where she declared there is no such thing as society would be the family. And that family was not only going to take over from the social state, what it had come to expect to be provided from the so-called nanny state, it was not only going to reabsorb the task of Pain for education, pain for childcare, pain for infrastructure, everything would be put on a fee per use, privatized basis. But it also was going to be the basis of the new, fully responsibleized society.
1: And what is a responsibleized society, I hear you say? Well, in Thatcher's eyes, a responsibleized society is one that can look after itself, not a weak, Baby society that needs a nanny state to look after it. And the kind of society that can do this in the neoliberal way of thinking is a traditional one. You know, from the good old days, the kind of society that existed before the threat of government involvement. I'm talking like Christian values, nuclear family structures, the way things should be, that sort of thing. To a neoliberal... This type of society is a natural and spontaneous, a sort of organic, if you like, way of organising society without the meddling government, without state interference. And it twins perfectly with the kind of free market economy that neoliberalism wants because, well, it means that individuals form their own little units of care and security. So they're capable of navigating society with no safety net. For example... Imagine you're a 17 year old girl who's ended up with an unwanted pregnancy. What do you do? Well, if you're in a country with state welfare and progressive social values, you'll probably be able to either get some sort of welfare aid or be able to go to a clinic and get a termination via the healthcare service. But if you were in a fully neoliberal society, welfare wouldn't exist and public health isn't the state's responsibility. Healthcare would be privatized like in the US. If you're a pregnant 17 year old in that society, you'll probably have to rely on your family who will either help you pay for the termination, help you take responsibility for the baby, or encourage you to get married, or discourage you from getting pregnant in the first place. And neoliberal reasoning is that a traditional nuclear religious family is more likely to do that. Neoliberalism encourages people to embrace the hierarchies and structures of traditional morality because such people are better suited to living under neoliberalism. Let's finish that famous Thatcher quote we heard in episode four. There is no such thing as society, there are individual men and women, and there are families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people must look after themselves first. This is the political pillar of the neoliberal project, to encourage particular behaviours and values in citizens, to transform who we are as people. Thatcher literally says this at one point. In an interview for the Sunday Times in 1981, she says, it isn't that I set out on economic policies, It's that I set out to really change the approach. Economics are the method. The object is to change the heart and the soul. This was Thatcher's vision, and the vision of others like her. Together, markets and morals would form the foundation of order and freedom, allowing the development of civilization in accordance to neoliberal logic. But there is obviously just a little snag, something to consider, what are the hierarchies in traditional morality? Uh, patriarchal, racially homogenous, Christian, heterosexual. All things that, according to neoliberals, are natural and correct ways of organizing, just as the market is natural and correct.
4: That is a really neglected part of what neoliberalism valorized over the past 40 years now nearly 50 years of its existence in um, the world. And we neglect it to our peril because it is part of what has fueled not just the free marketeering part of of the alt-right, but also the traditional social order, the belief that integration and multiculturalism are forced projects, social engineering projects, and that what really is natural to societies is family, fathers who rule them, uh, men in power, um, heterosexuality, and I'll just put it bluntly, nativist or homogenous cultures that uh, do not try to mix religions cultural practices and so forth. So neoliberalism
1: essentially doubled down on an inclination that already exists within those who adopt conservative ideologies, the desire for tradition, security, and hierarchy. And it's shaped the right because it's encouraged this trait in the extreme, resulting in a continued traditionalism and adherence to hierarchies because it's useful in their vision of how society should work. And again, what's the reality of those hierarchies? patriarchal, racially homogenous, heterosexual. Does that sound like the kind of community that's going to appreciate an influx of asylum seekers from the global south? Okay, so perhaps this makes a little more sense now. I mean, I know it's really complex stuff, but once I talked to Wendy about it, it was like slowly everything started clicking into place. So let's go back to Wigan Let's look again at the situation and apply what we now know. So here's a snippet of an interview with Lisa Nandy, who was Wigan's MP for around 12 years.
5: This is her talking to The Guardian about what happened in 2015. Listen to what she says. We had a phone call into the office from somebody saying, have you heard about the asylum seekers in Standish, a small village on the outskirts of Wigan, and look back through our correspondence, we hadn't had anything about it. But overnight, the whole place changed and nobody knew why they'd given no warning at all that this was about to happen so straight away we were getting phone calls from people saying what's happening it's Standish?" they were like there are people everywhere there are young men everywhere one woman said to me there's one in the co-op and i said to her well have you spoken to him she said no do you think do you think i should so we had we had a few people that got in touch with the office i could probably count them on on the fingers of both hands who were just it was just pure racism they were just very very angry about the fact that asylum seekers had been placed into the village but I I, I mean I I think it was just people were just baffled to be honest I mean if you moved 100 people onto my street I would be wondering what on earth had just happened
1: so the residents got no warning no heads up even if you live right next to the hotel Okay, so let's imagine for a second that you're Ian, the guy who started Wigan Against Refugees Facebook group. Let's walk a mile in his shoes. You live next to the hotel, and suddenly over 100 mostly male refugees from various countries are placed there, and will be living there indefinitely, as far as you know. And maybe they'll be okay, but also maybe they'll be restless and angry. Maybe they've come from conflict zones and are traumatised. And your daughter lives in the area. And it's your duty to make sure she's safe. And here's the thing. If you're Ian, you're already pissed. You don't trust your Labour MP to do anything because she doesn't seem to have a clue what's going on. And in fact, your whole trust in the government has gone down the toilet. You voted Conservative all your life. But really, really, what are they doing for you? Your job is harder, you make less money, it's impossible to buy a house and it looks like you won't be able to retire until you're 70. And all of this after they promised economic freedom and after doing things that sounded right, like Brexit. Of course, the neoliberals at the top of the chain knew this would happen. When you free the markets and you remove the tariffs from trade, businesses go chasing the cheapest labour. And the cheapest labour is not in the global north. These neoliberals knew it would devastate the stability and the security of the working and middle classes, knew that it would topple trade unions and good jobs and that it would increase inequality. But if you're Ian, you don't know that you've been deliberately left behind, thrown under the bus. What you do know is there is a gap between the promise and the reality and that you're feeling a lot of justifiable humiliation and anger. You look around you, community services have disappeared You have to pay for everything now. And because much of the community has been eroded, you don't know that many people in your town anymore. So you spend more time online, feeling isolated and alone. Because the UK, a country which has welcomed neoliberal policy with open arms arguably more than any of its neighbours, has now been voted the loneliest country in Europe. And politics feel irrelevant to your life now. It's even far away, it's all based in London. The Conservative Party doesn't represent you anymore. They've let you down. But what are you going to do? Entirely overhaul all of your deeply held ideological beliefs and turn to the political left? The left who are espousing that we, we just let all these people in, all these immigrants in, and probably put them in your town to take up your oversubscribed services and live in your hotels on your taxes? No, you're done with the Conservative Party, but you're not going to change direction. If anything you're going to lean further to the right.
2: Hello, me again. I'm just dropping in here for a second to run an idea past you because I found that it really helps frame what we're going to talk about next. Okay, so imagine for a second that you invest some money in something. Let's say £5,000. Over the next few years, your investment grows from £5,000 to £50,000, which is great. Amazing investment. Well done, you. But then just before you're about to cash in, the value of your investment drops down to £10,000. Hmm. How do you feel about this? I mean, technically, that's still a great investment, right? You doubled your money. But despite this, are you in fact fixated on the £40,000 that just evaporated overnight? Are you mostly focused on the loss? This is an example of a psychological phenomenon called loss aversion. It's an evolutionary trait that basically means we are more hurt by losing something of value than we are excited by attaining one and understandably this effect is heightened if for example you're from a lower socioeconomic background because the less you have the more fiercely you want to protect it loss aversion
1: it's human nature to care more about a loss than we do celebrate a win and it's heightened the less you have and Let's face it, Ian has suffered some pretty devastating losses, namely economic empowerment and democratic empowerment. So, of course, he's going to guard fiercely what power he has left to hold onto it all the tighter. And what does he have left? His God-given place in society. His spot in the traditional hierarchy. A few rungs up from the foreign brown immigrants in his town's hotel. And the far right, Britain First, UKIP, the EDL, they speak directly to that. They identify immigration as the threat that it is. Why wouldn't you feel a sense of kinship with them? Finally, someone who cares. Here's Wendy again.
4: I do think that um, one of the things that far-right movements offer is both community and a sense of empowerment, even when they're just online. And we know that many of the people who engage in the far-right online communities often describe these as the first places where they ever felt like they actually had someone to connect with, to talk with, to reflect what they actually deeply believed or felt with,
1: And this sense of community is bolstering the power given to them by traditional values. And this is essentially what the far right is built on. If you look at the language used by far right groups, they hark back to this frankly mythical past when families were happy and nuclear and heterosexual and when women and racial minorities knew their place and society was better for it, safer, happier, more orderly when Christianity and whiteness were our national identity and we were proud of it and wielded power as a nation. And it's the loss of this that then feels like the root of all your problems. On the homepage of the Patriotic Alternative website, they have a huge countdown for when white British will become a minority. The large black numbers tick by in seconds. And it's not just the Patriotic Alternative. I mean, just look at the slogans for right-wing parties and campaigns recently. Make America great again, Trump. Take back control, Brexit. France for the French, a little more on the nose. That's Le Pen in the National Front. Our culture, our home, our Germany. The alternative for Germany. Keep Sweden Swedish, the Sweden Democrats who did so well in the recent election. And then pure Poland, white Poland. Poland's Law and Justice Party. They're talking directly to the pissed off. The people who feel like they've lost... And when you've been disempowered, what do you do? Do you look up at those who are benefiting from the system that's run you into the ground? Plan for the big win? No. You're loss-averse. You look down at those who are going to fight you for the scraps, especially if their vilification is being normalised by the government. Our compassion may be infinite, but our capacity to help people is not. But. This is why the new plan for immigration and its legislative vehicle, the National Anti-Borders Bill, are so vital. Priti Patel announcing her new anti-refugee bill that makes Qatar's laws look like a humanistic haven. A bill that ignores internationally recognised rights and proposes that we send all refugees to Rwanda and then process their claims for asylum there. And if they're granted asylum, Rwanda's where they'll stay regardless of what they're fleeing from or whether they have family in the UK. To put it simply, the bill is shocking. But then, that's kind of the whole point. Listen to Labour MP Yvette Cooper's reply a few moments later.
4: Thank you, Mr Speaker.
1: We've seen over the last week, Mr Speaker, this unworkable, shameful and desperate attempt to distract from the Prime Minister's lawbreaking. that the Home Secretary should not go along with because she is undermining not just respect for the rule of law but also her office by providing cover for him. A shameful and desperate attempt to distract from the Prime Minister's law She's referring to the fact that this bill was announced during the COVID party gate, when our then-Prime Minister's popularity was tanking. A bill designed to shock and distract. And this is a perfect example of how hysteria over borders is utilised by our current government. If Ian chooses to blame the sinking living standards and underfunded public sector on asylum seekers draining our resources, then actually, that's very useful. In fact, it's so useful it would be a shame not to utilise it.
3: But here's something, right? You're listening microphone, something a bit <laughs> a bit controversial. Have a look at asylum hotels, find out which party your local the local MPs from.
4: Yeah. yeah it's yeah. Lisa
3: Nandy. My mate. She's brilliant, Lisa. So what do they do? The more flack because of that hotel, the better. In terms of the Tories.
1: Yeah. I was going to Lisa's say.
3: losing votes over this, mm. no doubt about it. But the Lee part of the Wigan borough, his name's James Grundy, MP, Tory. Why didn't they open up a hotel there? Fascinating, isn't it?
1: Mick did say that he would see as many as 15 to 80 asylum seekers in one day. Did that flag to you? Did you think, that's a lot of people? If you did, you're right, it is. If you look at the figures, almost a quarter of the UK's asylum seekers are housed in just 10 local authorities, and nine of them are among the most deprived in the UK. So we have that perfect storm, inequality and immigration. And of course, when the government effectively whips up fear over immigration, it pushes voters towards the only mainstream party that seems appropriately appalled by this threat. And if that causes a rise in those on the fringes as well, those on the far right, then I guess that's just a price they're willing to pay.
2: Part three: the ideological opposition to climate mitigation. There's never been a more critical time. Fox News Media brings America together. But so,
1: neoliberalism has produced conditions that are ripe for the far right to grow, and this is very bad for a lot of reasons, which are obvious prejudice, racism, fascism, riots outside hotels full of asylum seekers. And it's also a bad thing if we want to solve climate change.
2: Now you may have noticed the people in charge have a tendency to use fear and panic to get what they want. And what they want is to get richer and more powerful. Obviously they did it with COVID quite effectively. They're doing it with a lot of things, but nothing is more effective for the left globally than climate politics. It's an existential crisis. We're all gonna die unless you obey and make us more powerful. Bring us the Green New Deal or we're all dead. This is Tucker Carlson.
1: Until recently, he was a news presenter on the US channel Fox. He's setting up a report on a protest that's happening in the Netherlands where farmers are taking a stand against the government. The Netherlands is a huge agricultural state. They export a massive amount of meat. And if you can remember all the way back to episode two, then it won't come as a surprise to you that they're suffering from a nitrate crisis. Basically, they over fertilize the grass to feed it to the livestock, and then the soil becomes saturated with all this fertilizer, and the runoff leaks into the rivers and causes terrible pollution. And now the EU has ordered the government to make good on their promise of reducing it. So the government in the Netherlands are imposing restrictions on farmers. And this isn't going down
2: well. So this new order in the Netherlands would have the effect of destroying agriculture in the Netherlands. So farmers weren't for it. And to their great credit, there's still enough testosterone among Dutch farmers to protest it.
1: In and of itself, it's probably quite a complex issue. You have governments delaying important environmental targets and then having to clamp down much harder to make up for lost time. You have systemic issues in our agricultural sector, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's now taken on a whole life of its own because the right have built a conspiracy theory around it. And they're bringing out all the classic tropes.
4: Well, very simple, Tucker. What this is about is the Dutch government stealing our farmers' land. And they're doing this under the guise of a made-up nitrogen crisis. And that is basically going to put most of these farmers completely out of business. And thankfully, the Dutch farmers aren't having it. And well, it's very clear that the government is not doing this because of a nitrogen crisis. They're doing this because they want these farmers' land and they want it to house new immigrants. So yeah, farmers are hardworking, God-fearing, and especially self-sufficient people that are just standing in the way of their globalist agenda.
1: I probably don't have to say, but this isn't true. If you want to learn more about it, head over to our website. But what's interesting here is that this demonstrates something that's becoming commonplace. The right, the far-right and more central right-wing parties framing climate change mitigation as hysterical, unnecessary, a threat to people's freedom, and a guise under which to further the liberal agenda. It's basically climate denial, but updated. The overwhelming scientific consensus becoming an accepted truth in the mainstream means that flat-out climate denial is a hard sell now. So the far right have moved on to climate delay or minimisation. But essentially what's evident is that no matter how they package it, right-wing populist parties do not support action on climate change. And that's not a surprise, right? I mean, we know that climate change is a polarised issue. People like to say it shouldn't be political. But it sort of undeniably is. You only have to read The Guardian and then the Daily Mail to get a taste of it. And the data backs this up. In fact, in 2019, I wrote my thesis for my environmental masters on political polarisation on climate attitudes in the UK. Uh, it would like, yeah, where on earth will that be? Could it be... Uh, yeah. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. Those with right-wing ideological beliefs, so those who identified as right-wing, showed lower concern and knowledge and higher scepticism towards climate science and greater resistance towards mitigation measures than those who identified as left-wing. And then... Yeah, here it is. This was shocking. Do you remember I analysed voting patterns between Mm. Conservative MPs and Labour MPs? So 81% of Conservatives consistently, Conservative MPs consistently voted against mitigation measures whereas Labour was like the flip it was like 78% of Labour MPs voted consistently for them. Like, not one Conservative MP voted consistently for them. Not a single one. I mean, you can't say that's not a political issue. It's not just my study. There's tons of them, even cross national ones. And they pretty much all find the same thing. Why? Well, let's think about it. What are the two central pillars of neoliberalism? Morals and markets, free market economics and traditional morality. And the reason that neoliberals like both these things ultimately is because they're sort of natural and spontaneous processes. And that means that we can organise society in a way that avoids that which neoliberalism is very much against. Collective decision-making, governmental interference and social justice. And what will true climate mitigation and true climate justice require? Collective decision-making, governmental interference and social justice initiatives. It will require us to say nature has a value that the market cannot assign and to say society does exist actually and in it are structural imbalances that require redressing. And of course it's going to require this. What we've learned throughout the series so far is that climate change is the result of a system which has become incompatible with the world that we live in. A system that was short-sighted and flawed. A system that needs to be altered. And fundamental to that system is the neoliberal project. And of course, as Wendy says, is not responsible for all the woes in the world, but its logic hasn't left much untouched. And when it comes down to it, that means that system change is sort of dismantling the neoliberal project. And that is not going to sit well with people who align, consciously or not, with neoliberalism's economic and moral principles. In fact, to them, that means that climate mitigation is going to feel like both an economic and a moral affront, an attack on the two pillars that, thanks to Margaret Thatcher, go right to the heart and soul of many people in this country. Perhaps now it makes sense why refugees crossing the Channel is the second most pressing issue for Conservative Party members, and climate change doesn't even make the list. And, of course, the fear is that the political right are going to continue to resist any serious or structural attempts to address climate change because it feels politically affronting, it goes against their political ideology. And that means that climate change is going to get worse, which means a lot more immigration and inequality, which now we know means a slide even further to the political right, which now we know means an increased resistance to mitigation attempts, which means climate change will get worse and so on and so on until it's too late and it all ends in tears. In 2021, when I was researching this story, a Syrian girl came to London. She had big eyes, long brown hair, red boots, and she was 11 feet tall. And this is because she was actually a puppet, created by the same company who did the puppets in War Horse and operated by a person on stilts standing inside of her. I call her her rather than it, because when I went to see her, she seemed so incredibly lifelike. Not human exactly, but like she had a soul. When she looked to people in the crowd, more often than not, I saw them lower their phones and wave back like they didn't want to be rude. The idea behind the project was to symbolise the journey undertaken by thousands of unaccompanied child refugees. By the time she got to London, the puppet girl was nearly at the end of her 180km journey across Europe, having started near the Syrian-Turkish border and visited many cities en route. And their reactions to her arrival varied from country to country. Sometimes she was welcomed, and sometimes people threw rocks at her, just like the many, many real refugees that make the same journey. And she'll be finishing her journey in Manchester. Not far from Wigan, actually. I was part of the crowd waiting to see her arrive into London. She was welcomed by a choir singing to her. It was beautiful. And whilst I was watching and listening, honestly... I found myself sort of worrying about her. I knew she wasn't real, but she felt real and she represented real people. Her name was Amal, which is why I've given that name to my friend, the girl who I met in the camp in Dunkirk. They've made similar journeys to more or less the same place. And what mood would they arrive to, I wondered? Would they find welcome or hostility? Well, what ended up happening in Wigan in 2015? It's worth heading back because the town might have been an example of the textbook theory as to what triggers far-right support, but it also
5: shows us the solution. Here's Lisa Nandy again. We did a public meeting and it was mainly just people who just wanted to understand why it had happened, how long they were staying, who was paying for it. And so really fast the conversation turned to, well, who's helping them? And off the back of the meeting, one of the councillors got so upset by what had happened and particularly the way in which some of these far-right activists had tried to characterise Wigan as an intolerant, unwelcoming place that he launched an appeal with the Council for the Syrian Refugees and we got 36,000 bags of donations across the borough in just two weeks. What was really important about that meeting, though, was that we, we gave people the sense of security and control and it tells me that when people feel secure and empowered that's when we do well as a country. Lisa did something very simple. She held a meeting
1: and very quickly the mood changed because she had empowered her constituents with the kind of democratic rights they should have over their own town. They were included, informed and they could discuss the issue with their political representative and decide on a community response. It's the bare minimum, and even that was transformative. My suggestion is that it was enough to make people feel less loss-averse. It made the people of Wigan feel less threatened and therefore less likely to want to recoup their power wherever possible. And that meant that the rhetoric of the far right didn't appeal. The far right still had a lot to say, but the actual citizens of Wigan, they stopped listening to them.
3: I live in the area. It's interesting for me because when I'm hearing that us in the local area don't want them in that hotel Mm. well, I live in that area and my neighbours never say anything so a lot of it's exaggerating, scaremongering but most people either don't care or want them there Mm. they would be in the majority the neutral or the positives are in a massive majority
1: But they're just less loud
3: So what I'm going to say I've no real empirical evidence for this Mm -hmm. but for every nay-saying far-right person For every one of them, you'll get 10 locals that will go around and give them them clothes and bake them cakes.
1: Community has been one of the main casualties of conservative leadership. The social commons have been depleted, cut in the name of austerity. And we still have state provision in many areas, like childcare services and benefits, etc. But unless they're accompanied by a thriving community life, that leaves people dependent and isolated, highly vulnerable to any cuts imposed seemingly at a whim by the government whereas a thriving community offers so much. Journalist and writer George Monbiot has researched the benefits of community. It strengthens democratic empowerment, first of all, because social organizing and engagement forms the foundation for political organizing. Connected and engaged people are less likely to withstand cuts. They're more likely to be able to effectively protest a six-lane motorway cutting through their town or high pollution levels. Community also offers economic empowerment because it provides support networks and local businesses. And importantly, the process just makes neighbourhoods happier, more interesting places and helps form a sense of positive identity for people living there. It's one of the only ways that you'll interact with a range of people with different social identities on common ground. It helps prevent things like political polarisation in a way that reading an article or forming an opinion or being sermonised to never could. And actually, a study's been done by Lambeth Council in London as to how to restore communities. And the good news is that it only takes three years and roughly £80 per person, which is around 0.1% of public spending. And when you get to around 15% engagement from citizens, a participatory culture starts to ripple through the whole community, benefiting even those who aren't directly involved. The repeated narrative of the far right is to take back control of our lives. Well, this is the way to do it, by strengthening communities. If people are empowered and connected, they're less likely to care about the power that traditional morality gives them. It'll feel incidental, uninteresting. Or as it is, stale and false, something to be left behind. You've been listening to The Water We Swim In. Next week, we're going to have a little bonus episode again on this topic before we turn our attention to our final episode, in which we ask how do we achieve this change? So, if you want to read more about any of today's topics, support SWAT, Women's Centre, or just read more about Wendy's work, please head over to our website, waterweastwomen.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Producing this episode was me, Tilly Robinson. Co-writing was Matthew Robinson. Mixing by Naked Productions. And original music by Drew McFarlane.